Good morning, church family, and a very happy Father's Day to all the dads. Fathers have a huge responsibility that rests upon their shoulders. The impact upon your children and their lives is immeasurable. You are more than just a biological father, you are their provider their protector, and their greatest mentor. Your influence extends far beyond the confines of your little home. It shapes the future generation and has an impact upon society at large. Your love is to be a reflection of God's love for His children. Your love provides security, comfort, and encouragement to your children. Your love sets an example for them to follow. It teaches them the value of compassion, kindness, and forgiveness. Fathers, you are called to be leaders in your home. And your role as leader involves not only making important decisions, but also leading by example. Providing them an example, and believe me, your children are watching you, and they are learning from you. They observe how you treat their mother. They observe how you handle challenges. They watch how you live out your faith. Your actions, your words will have a profound impact upon their development. So be mindful of the legacy that you are creating. And strive to be a Christ-like role model for them. Let's pray before we continue our study of Genesis. Almighty, sovereign, creator, God of the heavens and the earth, we come before you once again this morning with grateful hearts. We come before you with humble hearts, longing to hear your voice through the ministry of your holy word, to be filled with your wisdom and your truth. O God, please speak. Speak and reveal your truth to us. Open our hearts and our minds to receive your word with humility and joy and obedience. Give us a hunger and a thirst for righteousness, knowing that your words are life and light. May your truth penetrate deep within us, transforming our thoughts and our actions and our desires according to your perfect will. Speak, O God, and bring conviction and comfort. Expose any areas of our lives that need correction or reproof or repentance. Soften our hearts and help us to humbly confess our sins before you. Grant us assurance of your forgiveness and the peace that comes from being reconciled to you. Speak words of comfort to those who are burdened and weary, bringing the necessary healing and restoration. Speak, O Lord, and guide our steps, illuminate our paths before us, that we would walk in alignment with your purposes. Give us discernment to make wise decisions, to navigate both the challenges as well as the opportunities that lie ahead. May your word be like a compass that directs our choices and our actions, leading us to glorify you in all that we do. Speak, O Lord, and revive our hearts Stir within us a desire to pursue holiness, to seek after righteousness, and to be filled with the love of Christ. May our lives be a living testimony to your grace, so that they might be drawn to you for salvation. Speak, O Lord, and equip us for service. Grant us the gift of your Spirit to fulfill the unique calling to which you have placed upon our lives. Help us to use these gifts for the good of our families, for the edification of the church, 
and for the proclamation of the gospel. Empower us to speak words of truth and love and hope in a world that so desperately needs to hear your truth. Father, as we open the pages of your word this morning with much anticipation, illuminate the scriptures with the light of your spirit, that we may see Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. We were created to worship God and to enjoy His creation. We are to worship the one who created it all and guard our hearts from worshiping that which He has created. Worship is not limited to singing songs, but really worship encompasses our entire lives, every aspect of our lives including the enjoyment of this physical, most beautiful world in which we live in. God created the earth and everything in it, and He declared it very good. Therefore, it's not contrary to a Christian worldview to appreciate and enjoy the beauty of God's creation. In fact, that is one of the primary ways that we worship our God is by enjoying the many gifts that He entrusts to us, by enjoying His beautiful created world. Please open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. Yes, we've made it to chapter 2. Hallelujah. We'll be reading the first three verses together. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed, And all their hosts. And on the seventh day, God completed his work, which he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because on it he rested from all his work, which God had created in making it. So reads the word of God. Did you notice that the seventh day is mentioned three times in these three verses which I've just read? And in fact, it's mentioned another two more times as well. The climactic seventh day stands apart. It is remarkably different from the other six days. First, what we observe is there's no introductory formula i.e., then God said. We, we saw that repeated phrase, then God said, then God said, as he created. And the reason why this introductory formula is missing on the seventh day is because his creative word is no longer necessary. God had completed his work of creation. Secondly, this day doesn't have the usual refrain, evening and morning, to indicate its termination. Because God's work of creation was finished. Thirdly, the seventh day is one day of the week which God blessed. A day that He blessed and He consecrated. Fourthly, unlike the other creation days, the number of the seventh day is repeated three times and then twice more by the pronoun it. Fifthly, The seventh day stands outside the paired days. It has no corresponding day. You'll remember that day one parallels day four. And day two parallels day five. And day three parallels day six. Well, day seven stands alone. It doesn't parallel any other day in creation. This literary pattern of six plus one is designed to highlight the the seventh culminating member of the seven-item arrangement. I showed you a couple weeks ago how seven repeatedly occurs over and over throughout chapter one. And while here the seventh day stands up, it is elevated, it is distinct from the previous six days. In verses one through three, we see three more reasons why the seventh day stands alone. 
why it is unique. And those three reasons are indicated by the three verbs that we see in these three verses. The first verb is completed, the word completed. You see it in verse 1, and you see it again in verse 2. The second verb is the word rested, which we see in verse 2, and then again in verse 3. And then the third verb that we see here is the word blessed, which we see in verse 3. God blessed the seventh day, and thus he sanctified the day. It became a holy day, an exalted day, an elevated day for three reasons, which are signified by the fact that God completed, God rested, and God blessed. Each of those three verbs are explicitly associated with the seventh day. Verse 2 says, the seventh day God completed. Verse 2 says again, he rested on the seventh day. Verse 3, he blessed the seventh day. Also, those three verbs are associated with the work of God. The work of God. In verse 2, God completed his work which he had done. Verse 2 again, he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. And then verse 3, God blessed the seventh day because on it he rested from all his work which God had created in making it. And so the pattern, the structure is very simple. It's intentionally designed to elevate this day above the other six days. This is a sanctified day, a holy day, a day which is set apart, a unique day for the reasons marked out that God had completed his work, rested from his work, and blessed this unique day. In Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, Moses describes three activities of God. Moses describes three activities of God so that you will worship God and enjoy His creation. Three activities of God so that you will worship God and enjoy His creation. Let's take a look at each of those activities. The first activity of God, the Creator, is that God completed. God completed. The reason why we are to worship God as Creator and enjoy His creation is because in six literal 24-hour days, God completed His work of creation. Verse 1 and 2 indicates the uniqueness of this day as connected to the fact that He completed His work of creation. I'll read 1 and 2 again. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed, and all their hosts. And on the seventh day God completed His work, which He had done. He completed His work. It's clear from the language that the entire work of creation was complete, was finished. And this again reiterates that creation was finished at the end of day 6. Finished in six 24-hour days. Since this original creation week, there's been no other creations. No other created works. The heavens were completed. The earth was completed. And all their hosts, simply meaning everything in heaven and everything on earth, was finished, was done, was completed, was made. A couple of weeks ago, I mentioned that there are different views when it comes to creation origins, the beginnings of all things. View number one, you'll remember, is materialistic evolution. And that's the view that holds that there is no such thing as a creator, God. There's no such thing as creation as having been made by a creator. This view believes that the entire universe, as it exists now, as we see it today, came into existence out of nothing. Somehow there appeared, out of nothing, something in a prime ordinal slime, which through billions of years mutated into this intricate, complex, and vast universe as we see it today. 
The second view is what we call theistic evolution, which, propo- which proposes that God does exist as really the original mind, the original power who launched and punctuated with creative acts the process of evolution, the process of evolution going on with some divine assistance. The third view is divine creation, which affirms, as we read in Genesis chapter 1, that the eternal God, all-wise, all-powerful God, without any aid of any evolution, made the universe completely, as it is today, as it is now. In six literal 24-hour days, He completed His work of creation. Nothing new has been created since then in the time-space world in which we live. And as we learned in our series... The first view can't be true because random chance cannot result in anything. Nobody times nothing cannot equal everything. Random chance evolution is an utter impossibility. The second view is also an impossibility since evolution is impossible. Any kind of evolution is impossible, even theistic evolution. So we're really only left with one final view, the third view, and that the universe is created by God, and we confirm that belief. It is the only reasonable belief. More than that, it is the testimony of Scripture. It is what Scripture clearly teaches. How the universe came into existence is clearly told in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. There is nothing in Scripture to indicate that an evolutionary process has ever existed. God created everything as it is now, and He did it in six literal 24-hour days. The genealogies, which we will get to starting from Genesis 5 onwards, give us evidence that God created this world and everything on this world roughly six or 7,000 years ago. It's a young earth. That's what the Bible says. And the Bible is the Word of God. And the Word of God is inspired and it is inerrant. It is unmistakable. God initiated revelation with a historical record of creation. And that's because the creation account is the foundation of the gospel. It's foundational to all history and all theology because it's an issue of origins. And that issue of origins is of critical importance in understanding the role in which God plays within His world today. The Bible is to to be taken seriously. We are to read Genesis 1 and 2 as seriously as we might read John 3 verse 16, or anywhere else in the Scriptures for that matter. And if you question the inerrancy or the authority of Scripture in Genesis 1 and 2, then you, are in te- then you are questioning the integrity of the Word of God. You are dishonoring God who inspired it. And really, that's the height of all arrogance. Christianity didn't begin with an acceptance of Jesus Christ as Savior. Christianity begins by accepting God as creator. And when you recognize God as creator and sustainer, the one who is sovereign, the consummator of all things within time and space, within this universe upon which we live, then you will know that God is acting in this world in which you and I live. And you and I are accountable to this God who is creator and sustainer who is sovereign and the consummator of all things. Science has never found one shred of evidence that anything has evolved. It's a theory. And that the record of Genesis is anything but true. So we affirm what Genesis says, that the heavens and the earth and everything therein was completed, was created by God. In six literal 24-hour days. 
So on day seven, in the original week, all creation, God's work of creation, had ceased, had come to an end. If you believe in evolution, even theistic evolution, then you believe that things are still evolving. And that is in direct contradiction to the clear statement that the heavens and the earth were completed, were finished. You'll recall on day one, God created light. On day two, he created the water and the expanse. Day three, he created the dry land and the vegetation. Day four, the sun, the moon, and the stars. Day five, the fish and the birds. And day six, the land animals and humanity, man. And he did it in each case in a 24-hour day as indicated by the repeated phrase throughout chapter 1, there was morning and there was evening, day 1, day 2. Or there was evening, there was morning, day 3, and so forth. At the end of the six days, the heavens and the earth were completed. And then in verse 31 of chapter 1, verse 31 of chapter 1, God saw all that He had made. And behold, it was very good. That's God's final stamp of approval on His completed creation. It was finished. It was complete. It was very good. And that's to say that it lacked nothing. Now that brings us to the second verb, which we see in these verses. The verb rested. And this is the second activity that Moses describes. The second activity of God. And that is that God ceased. God ceased. The verb is translated rested, but the Hebrew literally means that God ceased from His work. He stopped working. Genesis 2 verse 2 continues, middle of the verse, And He rested on the seventh day from all His work which He had done. On the seventh day, it literally could be translated, and since by the seventh day God had completed His work, which He had done, He rested. He rested on the seventh day from all His work, which He had done. As mentioned three times, it tells us His work was done. His work was done. His work was done. In verse 3, using the words, He rested from all His work which God had created in making it. Three times it said that God was finished creating everything that exists as we see it today. Now the verb rested in is a very interesting verb. It's very easy to misunderstand this verb, vaishbot in the Hebrew. It by no means implies any kind of weariness. It's not that God is worn out after a tough day in the office, after a a long week. Isaiah 40 verse 28 says, The everlasting God, Yahweh, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. Isaiah 40 28. When God works, whether it is His work in creating the universe and the heavens and the earth, or whether it is him upholding all that he had created by the word of his power, as the author of Hebrews describes, or whether he's accomplishing any particular task, there is no dissipation of energy or power. And that's why Psalm 121 verse 4 says that he does not slumber, nor does he sleep. He needs no replenishing, no refreshing. He never gets weary. He never gets tired. So what does the Hebrew verb mean then? Rested. The Hebrew word simply means that God did no work. He ceased working. Since he had completed his work of creation, there was nothing more for him to do with regards to creation. He ceased from his work of creation. Listen to Exodus 20 verse 8. The Ten Commandments. 
Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Now you remember this is under the Mosaic law, which we'll get to. Verse 9 and 10 says, Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But on the seventh day, that is a Sabbath of Yahweh your God, in it you shall not do any work. Verse 11 For in six days Yahweh made the heavens and the earth, as we're reading now, the sea and all that is in them. And he didn't work, literally. He rested. He did no work on the seventh day. So the seventh day was was rest, but not in the sense of replenishing lost energy, but really in the sense of just simply no longer performing any created works. His work of creation was done. And the same idea we read about in Exodus 23 verse 12. But in Genesis chapter 2, it is worth noting, and scan your eyes over those three verses again, it is worth noting that in these three verses there is no mention of Sabbath. You don't find the word Sabbath in these three verses. It doesn't appear in the creation account. It's also worth noting that nothing is said here in these three verses about man. There's no no command to man. It's It's not appropriate to deduce from Genesis that man should have a day of rest. We just don't find that here in these first three verses. You'd be importing other portions of Scripture and reading it into this account. That's bad hermeneutics. In fact, man isn't even mentioned here at all. Only God is mentioned. There is no Sabbath rest for man that is inaugurated here. That only comes later in the Mosaic law, in Exodus, which I've just read. And to clarify further, when you read this, there is a startling omission in these three verses. It's the little phrase, which we don't see, but we saw throughout chapter 1, there was morning, And there was evening, day, fill in the blank. We don't see that. It's not here. It was in every other day in chapter 1, verse 5, verse 8, verse 13, verse 19, verse 23, and verse 31. But not on the seventh day. At the end of verse 3, we might expect, and there was evening, and there was morning, day 7. But it isn't there. And since Genesis 1 and 2 is a very carefully, precise, precisely constructed account of the origins of the creation of all things, you would imagine that it should be included if it was meant to be there. But this sudden omission draws attention. It was there for a reason, or should I say it was omitted for a reason. There is exegetical significance. And the reason why it was omitted was because there was no more creation, no more work of creation needed. God had completed His work of creation. And I remind you again, on the seventh day, the day of rest in Genesis has nothing to do with man. God didn't say to Adam and Eve, now listen up folks, every time that the seventh day rolls over, I want you to rest. There's no command to Adam and Eve even after the fall. He doesn't say, okay, now that you've fallen, I want you to work six days, and then on the seventh day, I want you to rest. There's no Sabbath rule given here. You don't see that in Genesis 1 and 2. In fact, even in the Abrahamic covenant, which we read about in Genesis chapter 12 and the chapters that follow, there was the first greatest commandment to Israel, to the nation of Israel, the Abrahamic covenant. And there too, there is no discussion about the Sabbath. You don't see that throughout Genesis. It's clear, though, that this day relates to God. It is the day that He ceased from His work. The third verb that I want to draw your attention to is connected with the seventh day, and it's connected with God ceasing from His work. Verse 3 says that God blessed that day. Earlier in chapter 1, we saw how God blessed the, the, the birds and the fish, enabling them to propagate, to reproduce. We saw on day 6 how He blessed Adam and Eve 
so that they too would multiply. But what's interesting, here on day seven, God blessed a day, a a time period, this seventh day. And God sanctified it, or God hallowed that day. In other words, God uniquely identified this day as holy. The third and final activity of God is that God is, of God the Creator, is that God consecrated. God consecrated. The reason why you and I should worship God and enjoy His creation is after completing His work of creation in six 24-hour literal days, God consecrated the seventh day. Genesis 2 verse 3 says, Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because on it He rested from all His work which God had created in making it. The seventh day is unique. It has incomparable significance which is indicated by the fact that this is the first time in Scripture that the word holy is used. The Hebrew word is kadesh, kadesh. It's translated in your Bibles as sanctified in verse 3. It's the word holy. The, the root meaning of kadesh, holy, is from the root word kadash, kadash, which means to be set apart, to be cut off, to be separate, to consecrate or to dedicate holiness, kadusha, is elevation. It's exaltation above all other u- usual levels. So the seventh day is a special day. It is a day that is set apart from the other days of the creation week. It is a day that is cut off. It's a day that is elevated. A day that is exalted. That is lifted up high. The Hebrew use, and I'll get a little technical here, the use of the stem is called a PL, a PL, which is the title for some of the Hebrew stems. But the significance of that is that it's a stem, the PL indicates causation, causation. So it's to say that he made or he caused this day to be holy. The verb form is what we would call a declarative in the Hebrew, which indicates that he not only caused it, but he also declared it to be holy. So God made this day special, a a holy day. He caused it to be a holy day, and he also declared it to be a holy day. So it's doubly set apart by his making or design or by his declaration. None of the other six days is so identified and set apart as holy and sanctified, as exalted and lifted up above the others. It's the seventh day, which is unique. So what does it mean to be hallowed, that he hallowed it or or sanctified it? Based on extensive reading, I've concluded that God setting apart this day, he set it apart with the intention that this would be a day of remembrance. A memorial. All of creation occurred in one six-day period. Not billions and billions and billions of years. And then on the seventh day, God took that day and He said, I'm going to bless this day. I'm going to set this day apart. I'm going to elevate it as a reminder every week. A reminder that I completed my work of creation in six days. That I am the Creator. And I did this. I created the universe in six 24-hour days. It did not evolve. It is not evolving. It is not randomly creating itself. I created it. Remember that. Every seventh day, remember that. And worship me. For I alone deserve worship and praise. God said the creation is done. And I set apart the seventh day, a day in which you will acknowledge that creation is complete and that creation was created by Him and Him alone. If you think about it, there is no rational reason, no philosophical reason, no mathematical or scientific reason for weeks, seven days. 
But then why in the world does everyone operate their lives, plan their lives around the seven-day period? You can't divide 365 days into sevens. It doesn't work. That's why some months have 30 days, whilst other months have 31 days. That's why February has alternative days, depending on whether it's a leap year or not. You can't divide 365 into sevens. And why is everything counted in weeks? Weeks don't even fit well into months. Four weeks don't make a month, nor does five weeks make a month. Why in the world do we operate in sevens? There's only one reason, and that's because God established it within created order in his work of creation. And every week in our lives, we go through a cycle that is intended to remind us that God created the world in six literal 24-hour days. Every time a seventh day passes, we should acknowledge God as the creator. Remember, he is the creator. It's a memorial. To reject God as creator is to reject a six-day creation. And that is to unbless this seventh day. God blessed it. It's therefore to deny God his true identity as creator. It's to rob him of the glory that is due his name. Any kind of evolution, any kind of evolution totally confounds the blessing on the seventh day. If we evolving out of billions of years, well, then there's no seventh day. But on the other hand, if we believe what the Bible so clearly says, then every seventh day that passes is to be a memorial, a reminder, a proclamation, really, a testimony, a witness. That God is the creator. And he has finished his work of creation. And therefore he deserves praise. So what does this have to do with you and me? Saturday. Not Sunday. Saturday. Should be identified in our minds as the completion of creation. For us, Saturday is often used as a day for enjoyment. A day of rest and recreation. And one, day, one way that you can rest on the seventh day, one way that you can worship God and enjoy His creation, is to stop working. It's to go outside, go for a walk in perhaps the Michalisberg, or take a drive down to the Hardepiersport Dam, have a picnic in one of the many botanical gardens, go hiking, fishing, Rock climbing, play a game of golf, go for a bicycle ride around the cradle. Those are just a few ways in which you can worship God and enjoy His creation. Remembering that on the seventh day that God rested from all His work. It's a day where we remember that He created everything. A day upon which we get to enjoy what He has created a day to set the labor aside and just to delight in what God has made. Saturdays give testimony to God as creator. Sunday, on the other hand, gives testimony to God as redeemer. God as savior. Because Sunday was the day that Christ rose, right? On the seventh day, God rested and he finished his work of creation. On the first day, Sunday... God, Christ arose because he finished his work of redemption. One day for the creator, another day for the savior. Saturday, a perpetual witness to our creator God, finishing his work of creation. Sunday serves as a perpetual witness that God finished his work of redemption. Sadly, in our society, both days are often neglected. People don't care about either of them, but I know that you do. For those who believe in the one true and living God, we believe in creation. No week goes by without a memorial. No week goes by without a witness. No week goes by without a holy day. 
In fact, that's where we get the word holiday from. No week goes by without one day pointing to God as creator. Every seventh day. That's that day, Saturday. And isn't it wonderful that also no week goes by without a witness, without a testimony, without a memorial to salvation, to God being our Redeemer and Savior. And that's today, isn't it? That's Sunday. The first day of the week, the day when Christ rose from the dead for our justification. God designed the seventh day so that everyone would face the fact that God the Creator created it all in six days. And every seventh day, we have the reminder that the work of creation is complete. At the moment, I'm reading through Randy Alcorn's book on heaven. What an excellent book. And since heaven will one day be on this earth, albeit a restored earth, Alcorn encourages believers to maintain a balanced perspective. We are to appreciate the beauty of God's creation, whilst at the same time understanding that this is merely a faint reflection of the new heavens and the new earth, which is to come in eternity. We are to enjoy earthly possessions, but we are not to idolize them, to worship them. We can enjoy creation as a reflection of God's goodness and His creativity. But we are to ensure that our love for God and our desire to worship Him always supersedes our love for the earth and its temporary, ple- its temporary pleasures and possessions. In other words, you and I can enjoy a delicious, juicy steak, or a a fresh, crispy salad as an act of worship to God by recognizing that He created both of them, and they are gifts from Him. And when we acknowledge God as the ultimate giver of every good and perfect thing, and when we express our gratitude for His provision, we cultivate a heart of worship. It's one of the ways in which we worship God. But once again, there is a balance. We can enjoy delicious food to the glory of God, but we must avoid excessive indulgences and idolizing such earthly pleasures. There's that fine balance. God has revealed His glory and His creativity through His creation. And appreciating and marveling at the beauty of His creation can lead us to worship and awe and praise of the Creator. By recognizing the beauty in nature as a reflection of God's character and creativity and expressing our gratitude to Him and and our awe for His handiwork, He is praised. This can involve pausing to admire the intricate details of a, a bird's plumage or the vibrant colors of a sunset, and acknowledging them as a testimony of God's design and artistry. What about sports? Many of us love sports. We enjoy sports. How should we as believers regard sports? Can sports be an avenue by which we can worship God and enjoy His creation? Yes, absolutely. We can approach sports as an opportunity to develop and to use and to appreciate the physical abilities that God has entrusted to us, that God has given us. By participating in sports with gratitude and enjoyment, we acknowledge God's goodness and the gift of good health. And by striving for excellence, we can bring God glory through our dedication and our disciplined efforts. We can use sports as a platform to display godly character traits. Maybe not on the golf. No, I'm joking. Godly character traits such as integrity and humility, perseverance, teamwork. And by expressing these qualities, we reflect the image of God and we serve as a testimony to a watching world. Finally, sports can also be a means by which we build relationships and foster community have a positive impact upon others. 
And thus we can certainly use sports as a way to love and serve others, demonstrating Christ's love in both competition and cooperation. How should we regard our physical possessions, our material possessions? How do we guard our hearts from idolizing our possessions? Firstly, by recognizing God as the giver and ultimate owner of what we possess, of everything that we possess. He owns it. And we are merely stewards. We are caretakers of that which he has entrusted to us. Secondly, we are to ensure that we are using our possessions for God's purpose. We need to view our possessions as resources that we can use to advance God's kingdom and to bless others. This includes being generous, helping those in need, using our material resources to make a positive impact upon the lives of those within our sphere of influence. Thirdly, we must guard our hearts against trying to find our identity and our security and our satisfaction in those, our ultimate satisfaction in what we possess. Instead, our enjoyment of possession should only move us to a deeper appreciation, a deeper enjoyment of God. Our highest priority should be our relationship with God. And we should constantly be seeking contentment in Him, in Christ, rather than in material things. And then finally, we should embrace an eternal perspective. We should be using that which we possess for heaven, storing up our treasures in heaven, recognizing that they are temporary, they will pass away, investing in things of eternal significance. That's a good investment. According to Randy Alcorn, the foundation for storing up treasures in heaven, really the foundation for relating to any aspect of this life, whether it be sports or food or any form of recreation, the foundation is a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. That is the starting point. And then out of awe and gratitude for His incredible grace and mercy in providing salvation for wretched sinners like you and me, we then constantly work at putting off every aspect of His creation that so easily, that we so easily make into idols, while still striving to enjoy His creation as an expression of our worship of Him, and really of Him alone. When was the last time that you spent out in God's beautiful creation? When you closed the laptop, turned your phone off, and went out into the mountains on our doorstep, or the beautiful gardens, the waterfalls, the rivers? When was the last time that you read the book of Psalms, or or a few of the Psalms, as you gazed upon God's beautiful creation? When was the last time you spent reading and meditating and praying through Psalm 19 or other Psalms which speak about God's amazing handiwork? Well, on Saturday, the 1st of July, which is the seventh day of the week, the first Saturday in the month, the 1st of July, we as a church will be going on a church hike into one of the mountains nearby, really as an aim, with the aim of worshiping God and enjoying His creation. I hope to see you all there. Let's pray. Gracious and loving Father, we come before you in awe and reverence, recognizing your greatness as the creator of all things. You spoke and the world came into being. Your power and wisdom are evident in every aspect of your creation. Today we lift the voices of our hearts in worship and adoration, for you alone are worthy of all praise. Lord, we thank you for the beauty that surrounds us. As we behold the magnificent mountains and the vastness of the oceans, the intricacies of every living creature, our hearts overflow 
with gratitude. Your artistry is dispelled and displayed in vibrant sunsets and delicate flowers and the melodies of birdsong. Your creation points us to your character and declares your glory. In the midst of your bountiful gifts, we confess our tendency to, make, to take them for granted, to often overlook the wonders that you have placed before us, to fail to acknowledge your handiwork. And therefore, Lord, we ask you to please forgive us for our neglect and apathy. But today, we once again commit ourselves to be more attentive to your creation. Oh God, open our eyes to the miracles that unfold daily. Help us to find joy and wonder in the simplest of things. A gentle breeze, a roaring stream, or the laughter of children. Teach us to appreciate the beauty that you have made, that we may offer heartfelt worship in response to what we behold. Lord, as we enjoy your creation, instill in us a sense of stewardship. May we be faithful caretakers of the earth that you've entrusted to us. Help us, Lord, to embrace sustainable practices, to protect and preserve the environment, to make choices that honor you and reflect your image and your love for all that you have made. In the quiet moments we spend surrounded by nature, draw us closer to your presence. And may the beauty of your creation become a sanctuary where we encounter you, your peace, your restoration. We acknowledge that all good gifts have come from you, and you've blessed us so abundantly, and we're grateful. And yet we recognize that our ultimate joy and our satisfaction are only found in you, you alone. And so, Lord, please help us never to idolize that which you have created, but to always fix our gaze upon you, the giver of every good and perfect gift. May our lives reflect our gratitude and worship, not only in the sanctuary of nature, but in our everyday actions. Empower us to love others, to serve selflessly, to extend your grace to all we meet. And may our lives be a testament to your goodness and a reflection of your love. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.